This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And then we are joined by the most special of guests, Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger, the co-hosts of the Who Weekly podcast. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks Hi, for having us. of course. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, I mean, we should have you guys on monthly, honestly, uh, but specifically <laughs> this time. Because <laughs> um, we definitely are here to talk about all the Marvel movies, as you know, <laughs> so please bring us on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in theory, we'll go back to talking about award season at some point, but with the Oscars, like, still four months away, we got to expand our purview, uh, which is maybe a reason why we should talk about Christmas movies today. Um, you guys co-wrote an article for VF.com last week kind of ranking not the Christmas movies that out this year, but like the networks and the people presenting them and like breaking down the entire economy of Christmas movies. So we want to talk to you guys about that article and then uh, kind of Christmas movies in general. And then to preview the rest of the show, just briefly, we're going to talk about a bunch of the new releases that are out this week, uh, which is the week of Christmas. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. And we're going to have an interview with Emma Corrin, star of The Crown, from our colleague Julie Miller. So listen to all of that. But first, Bobby and Lindsay, uh, why did you guys want to uh, kind of explore the entire ecosystem of Christmas movies in this uh, fantastic piece you wrote for us? Well, we talk about Christmas movies every year for our podcast, but we mostly talk about what they're about, not necessarily the kind of system of them. But now that it's kind of exploded, it's so fun to kind of think about the way that all of these networks are getting in on the job that we used to think was just for a lifetime in Hallmark, which used to be just for Hallmark. And now it's expanded so much. What is the deal with this like explosion of people wanting to watch these honestly kind of crappy, silly, sentimental, small films, you know, that are on for made for TV. (laughs) And recently we did an episode of our own show where we watched two of them. It was sort of one for me, one for Lindsay, a gay one for me and one about a, a Jewish family for Lindsay. And it was like, Lindsay, watch this one. I'll watch this one. We traded off. We both watched both. And we came to the realization, we have this realization every year when you actually take the time to sit down and watch these movies that are advertised like crazy and hyped like crazy all over the internet now. They've sort of transcended meme status where it's like, I don't even know how I feel about them, but I watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we realized they're so much more fun to talk about and read about than to actually watch because at the end of the day, they're not good movies. You know, they're barely movies. But the machinations behind them and the casts and like pulling these weird random celebrities from one part of Hollywood and another part of Hollywood and then God knows where else and like making movies out of them every single year is fascinating to the two of us like endlessly. Yeah and you guys like I think 
have an interest in them, especially because they're a, they're a who factory. You know, who's being the like people who are oh, like yeah. s- supposedly famous. Totally. Uh, there's so many of these people. And Candace Cameron Bure, like, I don't know if you guys would call her them because like most people do know who she is, but like she's like the queen among them, and then everyone what? else kind of falls in the Respect on DJ Tanner's name. <laughs> is she a them? He's an official ruling here. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. She's no. done so many of these movies. She's if a she who. was a them, she's she's not right. I think I, mean, I think I think Candace Cameron is them, and Candace Cameron Bure. She's been a beret I mean, for a she, long time and it's still it's still very hooey. She really is the queen of I think lifetime. And then you have these stars that Lacey Chabert that show up in multiple movies. And now there's more and more of them that do these repeats. It's not even the same character. It's not like these are reboots. They're literally whole new movies where they're playing <laughs> a new woman who has come to town and needs to decorate the local t- town square Christmas tree. And how will she do it? There's no lights, you know, like whatever the situation mm-hmm. ends up being. It's and I think similar to that. And, and you brought up Candace Cameron Bure and I and yes, she's in a lot of them. She's actually not in she's only in one this year. I think she's sort of given other people time to have the spotlight or maybe she had other plans. Unclear why she's not in a million <laughs> movies this year. But uh, she's done plenty of interviews about this where it's like she after Full House and she got married to whatever's name, I think Val Bure, whatever her husband's name is. Wow. She had a family and, you know, sort of stepped away from acting for a really long time. Hallmark was her way back in and it was mm-hmm. more it was more successful for her than I think she ever intended it to be. And I think a lot of these other people have seen her as this template for potential success. And that's why it's so appealing. I think she's a major part of the reason that you're seeing more celebrities and sort of vintage TV stars try this because it worked so well for her. Right. It's a feel good thing. I think they know that it's like if you are associated with a children's show that made kids feel good. Now that those kids are grown up, you kind of can stick with the feel good thing. Plus, mm-hmm. Candace Cameron Bure is, I think, a very wholesome figure. She knows that. And so this really goes along with her brand as well. And I think other people who get into the Hallmark Lifetime Christmas movie game know that it's a great way to kind of brand yourself as kind of like a family, a family person, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it it's great for your own personal kind of a celebrity business because it means you can kind of jump off that to other things as well. And now that they're kind of popular, which is crazy to me, that it's, it works on all levels. <laughs> and Hallmark is the more wholesome one of the yes, of like is. Hallmark and it Lifetime. Is. Hallmark is much more wholesome. This is fascinating to me because I I'm having such an education here because I thought Kelly Martin was the queen of um, the Hallmark Christmas, but you're telling me it's Candace Cameron Bure is oh, the it's reigning Cameron queen. Bure. Kelly oh, Martin sure. was big, though. Mm-hmm. I think she stopped kind of doing them. You have Danica Patrick, Danica McKellar. Oh, my God, not Danica. Danica <laughs> McKellar is <laughs> one. But I would like watch a Danica Patrick. Uh, you <laughs> me know. too. Danica yeah. McKellar is a big one. I mean, you have yeah. these names that all have these like warm, fuzzy, nostalgic feelings associated. They know what they're doing when they're casting these people. All mm-hmm. The entire cast of One Tree Hill is in a Lifetime or Hallmark movie at one point <laughs> every year. The entire <laughs> cast. It's unbelievable. I did like the list of you, you You guys kind of gave the highest ranking to Lifetime and you were talking about how they're a little bit, you know, edgier in some ways and that they're more diverse. Like Kelly Rowland being in a Lifetime Christmas yeah. movie is perfect. Mm-hmm. Or Ali Stroker, who like I saw on Broadway in Oklahoma, like that's cool. Yeah. Like good for her for being able to like pivot in that direction. Yeah. They're it- trying. They're trying desperately. <laughs> Even their Jewish Christmas movie was mostly about Christmas. Let's be real. <laughs> but they at least tried. 
Yeah, so how was the experience of watching the Jewish Christmas movie and the gay Christmas movie for you guys? <laughs> well, Lindsay, the I Jewish mean... Christmas movie was Hallmark, which is why it wasn't as good as the gay Christmas movie. I think one mm. of the main reasons. And one of the, and, and because it was Hallmark, which is a slightly more slightly more religious than Lifetime, it was like Christmas wins. That's kind of, that's kind of the joke about this. I it's know. like, oh, let's welcome this Jewish woman into the Christmas movie environment. But at the end, it's like, this is a Christmas movie. Like, <laughs> Christmas know. is more interesting to it everyone was like in this ben movie. Savage shows up and he's like Hanukkah and the, the main girl's like mm, Christmas like it's better Not even ben Savage <laughs> oh my god this is so fun wait is the is the gay Christmas movie the one with uh, Aaron Samuels from Mean Girls in it that's so that's the two. Hallmark that's the gay Christmas okay, movie okay and it's it's the gay Christmas movie I think it's called the Christmas House and that one is less of a gay Christmas movie because they're not kind of the the central love story they're one of i think three but the christmas setup is the lifetime one with fran drescher as the mom uh and two actors who i had never really heard of but they're two gay male actors and they are actually married in real life and they're playing the couple in the movie so there's something sort of sweet about it i like that it's ben lewis and blake lee (laughs) and fran drescher is one of their mothers and even though i watched it twice I fully missed. I had to watch it twice for our podcast. And I missed, I guess, the throwaway line because I was like, it's strange that this is called the Christmas setup. And I assume Fran Drescher was the one setting these two up. But it's not the Christmas. There's no one set up. I missed some throwaway line where Fran Drescher reveals herself as like ordering the Christmas tree early so that they would meet. I don't need to get into the plot. But there is a cutie little meet cute happening in this movie. But they're they're tough to watch because they're just... They're very quickly made. They're cheap. But um, of those two, this one was much more entertaining. You know, like there there also is you mentioned Fran. There's like kind of a delightful uh, format where they have these actors that are like these nostalgic throwback actors. But then they add in like a classic like older actress like there's like Andy McDowell is one of these and like you have um who Fran and you have who else was uh Cheryl Ladd was also starring Cheryl Ladd and then sure. you have like um uh, <laughs> sure why not you just you always have Mary Lou Henner with, um, was the mom in Love Lights Hanukkah uh, uh, Patrick Duffy was in one of these as some grumpy old Christmas hater or something like you have these like they really like know how to use all of their resources meaning like actors who are willing to do this who do like have a moment of nostalgia like reference to them where people see them and they're like oh that guy you know what I mean like yeah. they know what they're doing and it's kind of impressive <laughs> Well, this makes me uh, want to get to Christmas on the Square, which might have like the great <gasps> goddess of all the like nostalgia actors in these movies. And this is the Dolly Parton one that's on Netflix. Uh, and you guys talked about how Netflix is kind of like throwing Christmas movies in there, and like the the quality is all over the place, which is kind of the whole Netflix thing. Um, but right. I watched the Chris- I watched Christmas on the Square on Thanksgiving, like after like eating dinner, and just like loved it <laughs> so much. I was so happy watching the entire thing. And I think that repetitiveness you're talking about, like you know, you meet the couple that's struggling to have a baby, you're like, oh boy, I I, I know where this is going, but then it has a bunch of song and dance numbers choreographed by Debbie Allen. Like I it's know. got this like extra layer that I think and makes Dolly it. Dolly wrote them all. Actually, yeah, I mean, yeah, and then it's like cheesy as all hell, but I think it's got like that inventiveness where you're like, kind of just can't believe yeah. where it's gonna go next. 
like Netflix counts, but they don't count because in that way, like they're they're doing things that are kind of outside the mold. And what we're talking is like this kind of age old mold, like they're breaking the mold by doing a musical that Dolly Parton wrote for stage. God knows how many years ago and doing it as like a filmed because essentially what that was was like a stage show filmed. Right. You could see it looked like a set, you know, and you had yeah. like professional dancers. You had like it really felt like a show, a live show. And so I think that they're doing lots of different things because you also have on Netflix, you have Holiday, which looked a little bit uh, more pricey than kind of the traditional Hallmark movie. You had weird, like cheap movies like Operation Christmas Drop, which looked like a Hallmark movie. So they <laughs> Not really the military. Like, <laughs> right. And then a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, what about Happiest Season on Hulu? It's like, well, that was a studio movie. That doesn't count. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that yeah. was made for more than $5. We cannot count that movie. That was a good movie. You know, like that was a well-made movie. <laughs> and I also think that Jingle Jangle sort of fits that mold too, because the the movie that's been getting the, the most, I don't want to say buzz, but I guess the best reviews was Jingle Jangle, which is the movie with Forrest Whitaker and Keegan-Michael Key. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I suspect that that had a theatrical release plan too. So it's almost like, it's weird that Netflix gets to lump all these things in together. It's like, oh, they release Mank and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, they must be of equal quality. And it's like, that's never been yeah. the case with Netflix. Ever, ever, this ever. This year's so. kind of a fluke where we don't really know what meant to have a release and what was being pushed to Netflix or Hulu or whatever, because I'm sure Lifetime and Hallmark are looking at these ch- at Hulu and Netflix being like, that's not fair. That's not yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. We, made, <laughs> we made 45 movies for the price of two. Like, In how July. dare you? <laughs> yeah. I tried the holiday twice. Um, and I had to spin out both times because I so despised the lead characters. The second time I tried, someone promised me Kristen Chenoweth would get me through, but not even Kristen Chenoweth <laughs> get me no. through. Yeah. But I did watch my first full, like, I, I have, I'm really ignorant in this genre. I am new to it. And um, I I watched my first full-length film that I think could qualify for this. It's It was called Moonlight at the Magnolia on Netflix, and it's maybe the worst thing I've ever seen I in my bet, entire life. I have never life. heard of that. Sounds yeah, like the never. worst thing. Uh-huh. Sounds terrible. <laughs> and, like, there's a bar that's in peril. There's a two radio hosts God. that have to pretend to be dating. Uh, it's the holidays. Um, I think it had everything you could possibly want. And, and like, I, you know, I was watching it, and I was like, I the thing that struck me, like, what you mentioned is one of these charms is watching like Fran Drescher do her thing or Patrick Duffy or whatever. I didn't recognize a single actor in this movie. And I was like, it's been a long yeah. time since I haven't watched, like, recognized a single actor. Um, you got to hop movie. over to Lifetime. You got to hop know. over to the big boys. Netflix yeah. is just not, they're just not able to do it I yet. They're not on the completely agree. I, I, I was playing in the wrong, like, playground. I got to go over where, where the kings and queens reign. So Wait, um, Joanna, did you watch Dash and Lily? Yes. Because it's like that's like that's a Netflix thing, but it's a show or like an antho- not an anthology, like it, but, but it's, it's based sort on of a adjacent, book, right? Question mark. But it did it. <laughs> that you know. just right. That one but, felt like I watched part of it too. That one felt like a normal Netflix thing just happened to be a holiday theme right. thing. Like it felt like they were like, trying to they were trying to chase to all the boys I loved before, um, yeah. but make it holidays, make it the Strand, um, and yeah, I watched that whole thing and and felt <laughs> suitably cheered. 
comfort yeah. and joy. It, 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 it does. It has the effect of uh, feeling like you've <laughs> just baked some cookies or something. I mm-hmm. mean, it could have used Fran Drescher, I'll tell you what, but, um, you know, <laughs> they did their best. Joanna, I want you to watch Christmas on the Square because I feel like as a fan of musicals, like you might, it might have the DNA to to work on you. I just, I just think hearing that you, Kitty Rich, watched Christmas on the Square on Thanksgiving is the most on-brand thing I've ever heard. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. No, this was it has a late stage twist moment. You, it's got, a, it's got a, some a weird, weird stuff weird, happening at the end there. Twists. <laughs> okay. And the funniest thing about Christmas on the Square is that Dolly gave herself all the best songs. These songs are, no songs have ever been less memorable than the songs in Christmas on the Square. I respect them. And the Debbie Allen choreography does a lot of work. But when you sort of get through one of the weird, um, just, I guess, expository songs where it doesn't really matter. And like, you don't even remember the melody right after it ends. A few scenes later, Dolly will start singing to Christine Baranski or someone. And you're like, oh, I love this. Like, even though <laughs> even though it's still kind of a bottom tier Dolly Parton song, a bottom tier Dolly right. Parton song is better than most songs. So you're like, oh, right. I understand the vibe of this. This is actually sort of nice, even though it's a completely bonkers movie that involves like a lot of child violence that's used to sort of make oh. the lives of adults better. Like, it's very <laughs> weird, the things that happen child in this movie. Violence. Oh my god! Like, There's also a part where Dolly, as an angel, appears in a in a cup a, in cup, a cup holder in a car. She's yep. sitting in a little cup holder, and she's like, "Hello, oh, guys, it's me." And you're like, "Oh wow, this is incredible!" They're shrinking Dolly down, and they're just, just making her sit on a cloud. She really is an angel. It's amazing. I could not believe there was there was. I don't know that this is a spoiler, but a child gets hurt to teach an adult no, a lesson, and this. I was like, "Oh Do my god!" Do not spoil god. this movie. And no one like the child was accidentally hurt. It's not like there is like someone like inflicts it upon them intentionally. No, no, no. But it's like, but if in the in the universe of this movie, everything has this grand design because it is, you know, a little religious. And it's like, oh, the things that are involved in teaching Christine Baranski a lesson are really sort <laughs> That's of That's how dark. many people must suffer. <laughs> a lot of people get hurt. Uh, I do great. want to give a shout I... out. There's one song where all the townspeople are in the church singing about how much they hate Christine Baranski's character. And it's got this very yes. music man vibe to it. I do like that song. That's like one good one that isn't Dolly's yeah. song. I'll take it over the Grinch any day. I'll take her oh. over the Grinch any day. Oh, man. Right. Did you watch like, the Matthew Morrison Grinch? Uh, barely. I could uh, barely watch it. I watched about 15 minutes of it. I couldn't even watch like, the no. promos for it. That, it <laughs> yeah. upset me. It disturbed I, me on a profound level. Well, I had yeah. to ask Bobby. I was like, is this a musical that Christian people like watch on Christmas? Like, I didn't get it. Like, I was like, am I missing like a piece of culture? Like, is this a thing? And he was like, no. No. Well, that's All right. Not fine. <laughs> and also this, that was, that's almost in a different category because the whole time I was watching, you know, the 12 to 15 minutes I actually watched of that thing, I was like, oh, this is for kids. Like, this isn't for me. I shouldn't really even judge this. This is like truly for children. So yeah, right. Like Alison Williams doing Peter Pan live on NBC. That was for me. That's like my (laughs) entertainment. Like This was not for me. I do miss that period or where Fox. it was like, I guess that's what the Grinch was, I like don't. the Christmas musical on, <laughs> on live TV. That oh, was such I miss a great it. time. I would give it all for the live musical to come back to TV. That was the most thrilling, stupid era. We need <laughs> Rent. We need it again. We need Tinashe and Rent live on Fox. We need it. I recently remembered Roger and Rent live with his broken leg. Like, yeah, that, 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 was that the one blew thing. up. They had to, they had to air folks? the dress rehearsal. I know. <laughs> Until the end. Remember the, at the end, they like showed him with mm-hmm. his broken leg, mm-hmm. like sitting down. Oh, my God. Thrilling. Thrilling television. <laughs> we need it back. <laughs> it was. Um, all right. So you guys have like watched a lot of the worst. Uh, what is what will get you through the holidays? Like, what is the thing either in the like the lifetime Hallmark genre or just in general that is like actually good holiday viewing? 
I think for me, it's got to be out of that out of that world because I'm a think I'm a little jaded in that world. I've like already studied the tropes. It's too it's too much. Last night I was watching as I was doing dishes. I was watching the Family Stone, and I always forget how much I love the Family Stone because it's kind of like a it's kind of like a trope and a meme at this point. It's like the Family Stone at Christmas, but it's like it really is such a good movie and on every level. And I just I can't recommend it enough. I'm trying to think it's of controversial though. Ones. Like people uh, like it's really d- have dividing lines on Family Stone. People really oh, hate that I movie. Love I love it too. I, I I love it. If it's Christmas, I gotta watch. There's a handful of movies I have to watch every Christmas, and it's it's The Family Stone. It's Home Alone. It's more recently, I try to I try to fit in. It's a Wonderful Life if I can, but it's not essential. More recently, I have to watch The Best Man Holiday because sometimes you need a good oh cry on Christmas, and that just gives Best you the Man cry Holiday. that you need. So good, such a good movie. Abs- and while yeah, you were I sleeping, mean, I love while you were sleeping. Trying to think if there's oh, any new yeah. ones, Bobby. You said you said Happiest Season's going to make it into your rotation, like moving oh, forward. You yeah, are and very I feel like within. and I feel like that's controversial too. Um, and understandable, at least among gay people, I feel like weirdly the the more reliably positive responses I've gotten have been from, I've seen are from straight people and uh, more uh, uh, unpredictable responses have been from gay people, which I totally understand. I just like, I really like what that movie is doing. And I think it's something that will grow on me. Um, Cause even the family stone, when I first saw it, I remember seeing it opening week with my sister cause we had to see it and I thought it was fine, but Every year I've liked it more and I do see myself liking Happiest Season down the line and watching it, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it, it's it, it fills this this void that Hallmark and Lifetime and Netflix, they just can't. You can't yeah. really imitate like a, a, a mildly thoughtful, modestly thoughtful family Christmas movie, you know, and they don't come around that often. And I think apart from the Family Stone and Best Man Holiday, there aren't really that many in this century <laughs> you know well, like i wanted to just... ask you where you are in love actually these days because you wrote about it oh, like no. a decent amount <sighs> in the hairpin I... like way back when and you know i think the <laughs> reputation of that one really ebbs and flows too that's a very that's like Loaded. a meme that went too far it's it's <laughs> it's a movie that i do love and and has a lot of sentimental value to me but like this this not to get like oh let's talk about lockdown and the pandemic i watched it every year for about the past 10 years i've watched it with the very specific group of my really close friends in New York and we always watched it the first or second week of November to kind of kick off the holiday season and we couldn't this is the first time in 10 years 11 years that we haven't done it and we had a very uh, we had a chat about it and it was like I don't want to watch it this year if I can't watch it with all of you so we're not going to watch it this year and mm. um so we're just not watching it we're going to save it for next wow. year and so that's really even... sad I mean I, I think that's, 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 that's so probably sad. the right it's choice a... but like uh it's a tiny but important thing that the pandemic takes away yeah and it's a it's a that movie has a ton of problems and it's like obviously I know all about those problems but they these these sorts of holiday movies they get like imprinted on you and they always yeah. just kind of make you feel good even if they suck and love actually sucks yeah. in most ways but you know, Richard Curtis you know, always just, does it on me. I heard you on. <laughs> I heard you talk about about time on um, oh, on this on at Oscar Buzz. And my I was heel just turn. Like, I'm not. No, I I'm not going to be movie. forgiven for that anytime soon. And I'm I an about time movie. apologist. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're big but Curtis anyway. heads. But I will say there is still, and once again, every year there's still space for a good Hanukkah movie. We don't really have many options. Every year I kind of like, I'm like, there's got to be something. And there just really isn't It's really crazy that there's not. It's crazy. It's crazy. And like, it's, you know, these Christmas movies, they, they get called Christmas movies if it happens around Christmas. There's not even that big of a, uh, it doesn't need to be about Christmas, but like things get put into this into this category for the smallest little reason. They just have to be holiday adjacent. And so I'm just saying like, it can't be that hard to make something actually good and memorable that has a, it's Hanukkah adjacent. So putting Friends it out family there, like, coming together. Come on. Yeah. You have like Come eight on. days to like draw the story out. Like what happens on the first night of Hanukkah? Oh. What happens on the last There's one? There's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's built in there. And I'm just saying that's still an option and we do not have, we do not have anything filling that hole. So Lindsay, I'm we waiting. found your calling. We found your calling. Write it. <laughs> oh this, my god! The Great American me. Hanukkah movie coming from Lindsay <laughs> That reminds me of when I worked when I used to work at a bookstore and we put out like the Christmas book display table and it was literally only ever Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins was like the one Hanukkah <laughs> book that made the table god. every year. This <laughs> is really god. depressing. That so. is depressing. Joanna, I feel like I'm right that you are a Lord of the Rings as a Christmas movie person. Like that yes. is a that is a holiday classic in, for you. Yeah, but I mean, only I think because my fondest memory, like one of my fondest memories is coming home from college like every year to go see each one in the theater with my like high school friends. And then I just watch it every December, the whole thing. And so I think, like you say, it's just like traditions. They imprint on you. And like, does Lord of the Rings have anything to do with uh, Christmas? No. Um, But (laughs) is it a Christmas movie for me? Yes. So, uh, you know, that that those kinds of traditions um the more i watch love actually like i i used to really like love actually and then it became a thing unlike bobby's lovely tradition which is like this is how we kick it off with my friends it became this like oppressive you have to watch it sort Mm -hmm. of dynamic uh around that film in my life and so then i've like grown to resent it whereas conversely the holiday the nancy myers uh film Mm. i describe it as like festive stockholm syndrome where like every time i watch that movie (laughs) i love it more uh another piece of it grows on me so um uh, the holiday i think has replaced love actually in my uh I can't yeah. do the holiday. Mm, I love like the, the one holiday. Nancy Myers I can't watch. Yeah, I can't is. do we, it. We split on the holiday. I love it. Bobby there is a Hanukkah it. scene in the holiday. They have brisket. There's a brief <laughs> moment. Yes, that's true. Because like, whose character is Jewish? Jack Black, maybe? Oh, no, the, the friend. Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach. Yes. And his like, elderly <laughs> friends are having a Hanukkah supper at Kate Winslet's house. Totally. All yeah. right, then the holiday is a Hanukkah movie. It's... <laughs> That's great. I feel like the whole point of a Christmas movie, like the oppressive thing you're talking about, Joanna, like there is no Christmas movie you have to watch. The whole point is that you seek it out, that it is the thing that is personal to you. There are no requirements around it. Like if anyone's trying to make you watch It's a Wonderful Life and you don't want to, don't do it. Uh, also, I have to add that Titanic is my Christmas movie for the same reasons that Lord of the Rings is your Christmas wow. movie. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah, but just the first half. December you cut 97. It, you, sh- you shut it off halfway, I mean, right? You, uh, it's, you, usually, you... it's usually my mom and my sister and I putting it on on Christmas and like getting through all of Titanic on, on Christmas Day when there's like other stuff going on is challenging. So, yeah, you often make it to the end of tape one where, you know, uh, he yeah. says, I, I think you may get your headlines, Mr. Ismay, and that's where tape one ends, as we all know. And you're so, like, <laughs> they got the headlines and the boat made it and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> exactly. Incredible. I love this movie. No, I mean, and usually, like I want like Lord of the Rings is mine but the, like family tradition wise yeah it's a wonderful life sound of music that's dictated I mean that's not a Christmas movie that's either Christmas but that's movie, dictated but it's a, by NBC right. airing it uh, like uh, around Christmas uh, in the good old summertime 
which is like a Judy Garland film, Mimi and St. Louis, Judy Garland film, like a lot of like White Christmas, like a lot of old 1940s, 1950s sort of musicals mm-hmm. was like the vibe in my house growing up. So that's those are the comfort holiday movies that I revisit. White Christmas is a great one because there's not much plot to it. Like it's a pretty straightforward like, like excuse to put on a show because like It's a Wonderful Life is a little complicated. Like if you walk away and you're you're going to miss something, there's a lot of like characters <laughs> to come in and out. But White Christmas used like... You can just ride with that one and go bake some cookies pretty, and come back. Great music. So yeah. It's so always funny because so we never color. watched in my household, we never watched like the kind of the OG ones. We only watched kind of the spin-off ones. Like a Christmas Carol I never saw, but I loved the Adiva's Christmas Carol. And I didn't understand that it was like based on like an age-old story. Adiva's Christmas Carol is a movie that aired on VH1 a lot, starring Vanessa Williams and oh Chili my- from TLC. Oh and it was God. about a girl, a girl group, and the lead singer of the girl group like is the one who gets Christmas Caroled, essentially. That's <laughs> she has to like amazing. go back in her life. But there I were love so the many phrase gets Christmas Carols. <laughs> you know exactly. I I do. (laughs) When Bill Murray gets Christmas Carol in Scrooge, that's one of my favorite movies. Yes. Remember when Nick Nick Cage gets Christmas Carol in A Family Man? There are so many crappy good spinoffs of this one story that are so fun to watch. And like maybe those are the ones that you seek out. Yeah, I, mean, I, just put, I just put Muppets Christmas Carol back on. It's on Disney Plus. I watched it with my kids who like, so you know, half enjoyed it. But yeah, that movie's so good. And that's like some nostalgia, mm-hmm. but like it wasn't like in the heavy rotation. So I can still kind of like discover new things about it. Like unlike mm-hmm. Home Alone, which I have memorized like every single beat of and also still love. There's so much yeah. to choose from. <laughs> Home Alone also just sounds like Christmas. The, the, yeah, the music of Home Alone true. does a lot of work, too. Yeah. Well, wait, Bobby, you grew up in the South, too. Like for me watching Home Alone, I'm like, you can just like spray your steps with water and it turns into ice overnight. Like, how does that oh, work? I don't understand any of this winter stuff. <laughs> Shocking. Snow stuff always. I mean, I think you're right. Like snow stuff was catnip for me because oh, yeah. I never experienced snow. I remember the first time I have a, a memory of snow and I must have been. I don't know, 10. And it was, we were driving to Colorado for something and we drove through New Mexico and I was like, oh, this is it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. It's real. Cause it yeah. didn't, it didn't feel real. It felt like something at Kevin McAllister's house, yep. you know? Yep. Like, absolutely. I mean, I, I also, I also, uh, one last thing I want to say, like, fine. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Like, I don't care. Like yeah. whatever yeah. it is that you enjoy watching at Christmas time is fine by me. Gremlins. Sure. Why not? Like, Take you it. know, like, <laughs> Do it. Enjoy it. Make yourself happy, especially this year. Whatever it is is going to like put some cheer in your heart, put a little love in your heart, as they say at the end of Scrooge, then you should do it. So do I it. would love to hear from what other people like in the in the Titanic Lord of the Rings sound and music vein, like what is not a Christmas movie, but is a Christmas movie for you in your life? Because those are those are fun to discover. Um, well, Bobby and Lindsay, thank you guys so much for going down the the Hallmark Lifetime <laughs> Netflix journey with us. Uh, we you're will, so welcome. Yeah, we will have you guys back on soon to talk about uh, maybe more thems. Uh, but you guys are the experts on on this world of who's. So thank you. Yes, thank, thank you so you much for having, for having us. us. <laughs> this was so much fun. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large. 
today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Okay, Joanna, so uh, if people are not worn out on all the Christmas movies we just threw out there um, and the you know many hours of Hallmark and Lifetime programming that are available to people, there's a bunch of movies that are out uh, in time for Christmas as we all think about the act of actually going to the movie theaters during the Christmas season and how, how nice that was. We'll get that back someday. We, neither of us has seen Wonder Woman 1984, so that's probably the biggest release, but we're not going to talk about it because we haven't seen it. Um, but let's talk about Soul because that's the Pixar yeah. movie. It's out on Christmas Day on Disney+. Plus which is very exciting. I had a screener of it and watched it like five times with my <laughs> children. Yeah. Um, and it's been, but it's been a while. It's been like a month. Um, but I have like, it has like lingered with me so much. I think every time a new Pixar movie comes out, there's always this like, well, how does it second next to Wally? Like, is it great Pixar? Is it good enough Pixar? But good Pixar is so much better than like, anything else just you get especially in like the world of like directly for kids animation um and i haven't seen wolfwalkers yet so i'm not trying to diss wolfwalkers um because that one's also very good apparently um anyway i just love soul <laughs> what what did you think of soul yeah no i like soul a lot too um that's so funny i'm don't worry i'm not gonna cancel you um <laughs> i i'm glad that uh that you have soul because i actually just saw the news that sing 2 is coming and i know that that's going to be on constant rotation sing, in your house sing so. 2 is going to be a big one for us so <laughs> we're, i think we got a while so Soul, I mean, I was just thinking about this. We were talking in that in that previous segment about movies that don't have anything to do with Christmas but feel like Christmas movies. My family for a while had a tradition, Boxing Day the day after Christmas, like my cousins would sleep over and we would go to the movie theater and like pick a movie. Mm-hmm. And it and like so those movies, Cash Me If You Can is one of them. Like there's just a few movies that are like feel like Christmas movies to me because I remember going to the theater with my cousins. And I can only imagine that it'll be even stronger to like sit maybe in your Christmas gym jams at home mm-hmm. with like wrapping paper shrapnel around you watching Soul or watching Wonder Woman. You know, we we can't speak to Wonder Woman. We haven't watched it. But like these big movies that were supposed to be in theaters, this has been, uh, you know, a, a bumpy year uh, as we've been talking about again and again. But it's giving us this one opportunity at the end of the year to have these two, which feel, two movies that feel like big movies yeah. in your home that you can watch with your family or if you can't be with your family that you can watch like, you know, on uh, on by your lonesome and, and feel, um, you, you know, like zoom you zoom with your family on a laptop and watch the movie together. Oh, if you, I love if it. You I love that. To. So, <laughs> it would be yeah, weird, but okay. And I think Soul is like a really thematically, like once again, it has nothing really to do with the holidays, but thematically, like it tells the story of Joe, uh, voiced by Jimmy Fox, who uh, is a music teacher, wanted to be like a jazz musician, like a professional jazz musician his whole life. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say his life is is cut short quite early in the film. And then it's sort of about his journey in the afterlife, a, a return to Earth and like second chances, opportunities and what it actually means to sort of pursue your passions and stuff like that. It's, it's all these like very humanistic, uh, relatable, even if you don't care for jazz, um, sort of themes really entertaining cast and you know beautiful artwork everything you expect from Pixar uh, and 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 heartstring moments and I'm happy to hear when you told me that it was a huge hit at home with with your kids too you know that means it's working on because I think I could see it working on um, essentially you know 
not to, I don't know, weirdly quote Langston Hughes' moment, but especially in like a year about dreams deferred, which uh-huh. is like what this year feels like, I can see it really hitting with adults, but like that it hits with kids too. Um, I think it's a really good opportunity. Disney did not pay me to say this, but I think it's a really good opportunity for something, you know, for us all to relate to. This holiday yeah, season. I mean, the theme of the movie, I think you can get into it without spoiling it too much. Like it's about ambition and like what you want to be in life, but there's also just something about like, this is your life. Like the moment you are in is the life that you have. And that's, it is what it is. And I think this year has been a really tough one for that, where it's kind of felt like everyone's like, you're on hold and you're not getting to do the things that you want to do. And you're like dealing with a ton of frustrating circumstances. And I thought that part of the movie was really moving. And I don't know that my kids are really tuning into that at all, but like it's a caper movie. Like a lot of Pixar movies where there's like a lot of like running around in a space, like, you know, think of the doors and Monsters Inc. Like there's a lot of moments like that. The animation in the afterlife and especially the like, before life part, I guess, where he meets this soul played by Tina Fey. Um, the animation of that is incredible. Like, saw all these like line drawings and abstractions. And Rachel House plays this like account. Rachel House, who is in um, Hunt for the Wilder People, the movie we both love, and then uh, she's the Moana. grandma in Moana, yeah. and um, she's in uh, Penguin Bloom, a movie that was at Toronto. Anyway, she's very good in it. Um, Anyway, she's this, like, accountant who's, like, kind of the bad guy trying to chase him down. And she's so funny. Like, this, like, great she's voice performance. the best. Um, yeah. So there's all this, like, inventive stuff going on. And there's a funny cat. And the New York City stuff, like, you know, they go back to Earth and they're in New York. And it is such a gorgeously realized version of New York. Um, you know, a city that I think you and I both have some levels of nostalgia for. And I think a yeah. lot of people do, even if they're still in New York. Um, and so that was really exciting, watching them just, like, so... I, I was thinking, Joanne, about the... Um, you wrote about a Pixar short a couple years ago that was, like, it's filmed on the beaches near Monterey, which is near yeah. where you have grown up, and, like, that felt so vivid to you. And now they're doing the same thing for New York, just, like, recreating real places in, uh, in incredible detail. Yeah, shout out to Piper. I love a Piper shout out. Um, yeah, the uh, it's a very autumn in New York, isn't it? Vibe, yes, uh, super soul. golden leaves yeah. and like yeah. scarves. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really nice opportunity that will be out for folks to watch, uh, and Wonder Woman the same day. And I think, I mean, honestly, why not both? Is what yeah. I have to say about that. It's funny. I've been <laughs> I've been part of this. Um, sort of bad movie club all through the pandemic where every Friday we gather and watch like a quasi like bad movie over Zoom and it's it's really like it's fun to watch a bad movie on Zoom because yeah. then you can like just talk through it and you don't mind. Um but we're we're currently deciding this week whether or not we're we're doing like a naughty or nice option. Nice if we decide like to treat ourselves we're going to watch Wonder Woman. If we decide to do like a naughty thing, it's going to be Batman and Robin, which is a movie that we have deemed too bad to watch all year. And we're like, we're going to finally, <laughs> we're going to finally do it. We're going to finally do Batman and Robin. But Wonder Woman is the, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm sorry that we haven't seen it, so we can't speak to you. But it's getting generally positive reviews. I think yeah, people are it, just it feeling like it seems like something I'll be happy happy to settle into yeah. on December 26. I think exactly. Um, well, let's talk about Promising Young Woman, which is really the opposite of soul in so many ways. Not a movie I would recommend seeing with your family or with children of any age. But uh, it's been a really exciting movie for a lot of people ever since it uh, premiered at Sundance in January, which is, you know, full several full lifetimes ago. Um, and it's the first big role for Carrie Mulligan in a really long time. She's been a, you know, a, a promising young star for a while. And it's the directorial debut of Emerald Fennell, who... We know as Camilla on The Crown, um, and is also the showrunner on the second season of Killing Eve, I think. Yes. And yeah, it's this like very high concept movie about this like, young woman who's has a traumatic experience in her past and she kind of spends her nights as a vigilante, um, you know, in some ways like a like a superhero vigilante with all the uh, ethical problems that come with that. I think I mean, the movie is so stylish and it's so assured and confident of what it's doing. I don't know that I'm fully on its wavelength. Like I think 
the the heavy stylization makes some of the emotional stuff difficult to to work with because there's kind of you know this woman is kind of two different people basically she's like a normal person at the coffee shop she's got this cute romance with Bo Burnham who could not be cuter than he is in this movie and then all this kind <laughs> of like not really violent but unsettling stuff that she does at night um but it's it's a fascinating movie I think everyone really needs to see it if only because Emerald Fennel has made such a mark with this debut well yeah so it's interesting um. I really like Promising Young Woman. I'm really glad I watched it. It's a movie that I think is not you it's interesting that you call it confident. I guess it is confident, but I feel like it doesn't have its tone perfectly nailed down, which I think is also what you're describing. Mm-hmm. This sort of disjointed feeling to it. Um, where almost I wish it had gone darker or lighter, but trying to pair the two is is a little um it winds up a little funky for me. Um I, I was watching it at the same time as I was watching the end of the flight attendant and I was like, I really feel like it needed the flight attendant tone like oh, throughout. Interesting. Like, Those are a really is, interesting comparison. That that's like the exact tone where there's like murder and violence but also like comedy there. Yeah. Um Carrie Mulligan's fantastic, She's fantastic in this film. And Emerald Fennel, we're gonna talk a little bit about some critical body critical bodies. Uh, you know, award it, put their awards out uh, in the last uh, week and a half or so. Um, and Emerald Fennel won, like, uh, was it Promising? Yeah, Promising Film Director at the Chicago. And I'm like, that's exactly where I want to put it. I mm-hmm. want to put this gets me really excited for what Emerald Fennel is going to continue to do. Like, I don't think it's a perfect film, but it's a really exciting film. And and it just it just makes me excited for what she's going to do next. Does that make any sense? Yeah, like, yeah. She won Best Screenplay at um, Los Angeles Film Critics as well. And they gave Carrie Mulligan Best Actress. So, yeah, I think there's just there's a lot of I, like maybe in some ways like right, the right level of attention. Like, even if I don't think it's a perfect movie, I think it just really demands to be noticed. Um, and especially like, you know, it's a very explicitly like Me Too era movie about like what yeah. women endure and don't talk about. And this is kind of like putting it all out there on the surface. And it can't be talked about too much. So having that be there and having it be an entertaining movie that is about these topics, um, I think is also really valuable. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to um, the casting in this movie because there's just like a parade of nice guy actors in this movie. You've got Adam Brody, Max Greenfield, Christopher Mintz-Plasse, like McLovin's in here. Yeah. Um, You've got... Yeah, Burnham, and then Bo Burnham, would, obviously. Yeah. You know, I was looking for Jake Lacey. He's not here. Oh, Sam Richardson, yeah, it's crazy that Jake you know? Lacey's not in this movie. <laughs> like, Jake, Jake Lacey should definitely be in this movie. Sam Richardson is there. Um, exactly. Right, so, right. yeah, he's great in this. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, you know, and, and they're all used perfectly. Uh, Chris Lowell, uh, who people might know from Veronica Mars, Piz from Veronica Mars is, is here, uh, kind of the final nice guy. So like it's a, it's it's a really clever bit of casting in addition to, I think, a really fun role for Carrie Mulligan. So Yeah, I think that, you and I are both of the Seth Cohen generation where when Adam Brody shows up in anything, we're <laughs> automatically going to be like, oh my God. And then it, this movie plays with that in a really nice way. I know. Yeah. Jake Lacey and maybe Joshua Jackson need to be there too. Anyway, um, I think the release schedule for Promising a Woman is this out in theaters, uh, but then uh, it's going to be streaming at home not until January. So if you're wondering where you can see it, um, if you're if you're being very COVID safe, you're going to have to wait till January. Um, but hopefully it'll be worth the wait. So, yeah. Uh, late breaking news. Richard Lawson has joined us. Uh, Richard, you for for very good reasons, missed the first half of the show. But thank you for for making it back. Uh, just in time to tell us about the movies that you've seen. Yeah, I was taking a test and I aced it. So. Yay! Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> 2020 out with a bang. Yeah. Um, so Joanna and I have talked about a bunch of the movies that are coming out this week, but uh, there's uh, several more that you have seen as well. And uh, I wanted to bug you first about Midnight Sky, which you reviewed, and I had kind of like 
not rolled my eyes at it, but I had kind of like sighed at having watched it. And you were like, no, I, I, I thought it was pretty good. And then I felt uh, appropriately shamed. So tell me why you liked Midnight Sky. Well, I watched it um, a couple of weeks before I had to review it. So I kind of knew I had to do a second viewing eventually, but I was just so curious that I, I watched it in early December. And, you know, for the bulk of the movie's run, I was like, this is just okay. Like, it's kind of, oh, oh there's gravity and here's some other survival narrative uh, in, in the Arctic. And it just felt very familiar. And then the movie ended and it has this kind of, I mean, it's a sad ending, but it's also a little hopeful. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a Sunday evening and I, we, we, we you know, we closed the movie, probably watched, I don't know, Old Drag Race or something for a while before going to bed. And I stayed up and I couldn't shake whatever feeling Midnight Sky had imbued into me. So I was kind of like, okay, does that mean it's a good movie? And that's, you know, when I rewatched it for a review, I still think that it, you know, it's about um, the world has ended essentially. There's only a couple people alive, one of which is George Clooney. And there's a mission, a space mission coming back from a habitable moon of Jupiter. And basically he has to race to find an antenna that can broadcast to them that they shouldn't come home, that there's no Mm -hmm. reason to come home. So it's a pretty like fatalistic idea, but it felt appropriate for the, for this year in some ways, acknowledging that a lot has been lost, but also that there is still something worth, uh, you know, continuing on for. And so I think that made me forgive a lot of the the filmmaking choices that are, you know, a bit, I don't know, like not pedestrian, but sort of familiar. So I don't know, I kind of recommended it in my review to anyone, and maybe it's a very slim amount of people, but uh, who is looking for kind of that sort of wistful bummer, you know, Mm. vibe this this holiday season, I think Midnight Sky uh, could do the trick. Yeah, it's funny that it's like on Netflix kind of sandwiched in among the the holiday movies that we were just talking about that are um, with with Bobby and Lindsay and then, you know, Soul and Wonder Woman, which are like just much, much bigger and like more colorful and and enticing in some ways, because it is like kind of a a bummer, like you're saying. And I I found it like, I think just like a little bit more of a slog where you're kind of like watching these two parallel plots that like you don't know how they're going to match up, but you kind of figure they will. And you're kind of like sense that the movie is withholding something from you, which eventually you find out what it is. And I, like, I, I think I got impatient with it in a way that maybe even watching at home doesn't benefit, where you're kind of like sitting and being like, oh, okay, well, like, what else is in my queue? I will say it does feature one of my favorite uh, uh, microtropes, which is a pregnant woman uh, getting shit done. Felicity Jones is playing an astronaut, and she was really pregnant, and they wrote it into the story. Um, and I think that adds a lot to the story as it goes on. Um, but it's just nice to see her like one on a space block, and it's like, okay, sure, she can she can do things. Um, yeah. So I appreciated that uh, shout out. Yeah, and, and you know, she's good in it. Um, David Oyelowo is good in it. Damien Bashir, Kyle Chandler, Tiffany Boone. You know, it's a good little cast. Um, and the budget, you know, looks pretty good, pretty substantial. You know, and it's an interesting project because Clooney was sort of asked to direct it. It wasn't like something where he, you know, shepherded it from the germ of an idea to a film. Um, he kind of arrived at it late. The book that it's based on, Good Morning uh, Midnight, is apparently quite a favorite of people. So there was some um, urgency to like get the film version right. Hmm. I will say the movie really made me want to read the book because I would imagine that given what the movie kind of lays out for us, the novel form is that much richer and, and more moving and probably, yes, uh, kind of devastating. Did it make you want George Clooney to make a comedy again? Like, because he's like fine in this, but he's very like stoic and bearded and kind of like up against the elements. And I was just thinking about his like incredible natural charisma that he hasn't used on film in such a long time. Yeah, something in the vein of Out of Sight, you know, where it's not him mugging like crazy, like in, I mean, even though I like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Like, I think sure. that, 
sometimes found that that movie could often find the limit of his comedy. But yeah, something where he's kind of cool, suave, but not so knowing as Ocean's the Ocean's movies. I think Out of Sight was a perfect. Uh, it's a perfect like, film. Yeah, like it was. It was like it was rakish. It was charming. It was yeah. suave, but not too debonair. It was. It was just a really good combination. And no, you know, in this, he's bearded, very monosyllabic. You know, it is more just like he was directing it, and he was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll play the guy too." Yeah. Well, that he's makes a company. Me wanna, got, go ahead, Joanna. Sorry, I, I want to go off on a different film so we can stay on Midnight Sky. Well, wait, I was going to pivot to News of the World. Is that where yes. we were headed? Yeah. Speaking so, of <laughs> bearded, monosyllabic uh, leading men, giant Tom movie Hanks. stars. Yeah, Tom Hanks and News of the World. Accompanied by uh, nearly mute young women. Uh, it's really weird that these two movies are out at the same time. So News of the World of like of all the movies that are going straight to VOD, I feel like feels the most like this is a big screen. Like it is so big. It is a Western. It is on these West Texas vistas. Um, And it made me like it made me want to see it on the big screen. But it also felt like this little like gem of a movie experience dropped into my house more than a lot of the movies that I've seen. Like it had this this fullness that felt really nice. Um, Joanna, I think you were about to say you loved it. I loved it. I, I had no expectations of it. And I knew nothing about what it was about, except that it was like in the Western genre bucket and Tom Hanks was in it. And uh, I think I maybe I felt the way about it that like everyone else seems to have felt about First Cow. First Cow is a movie that I definitely am going to watch again because I seem to have missed what everyone else saw in that film. And maybe I was just in the wrong mood that day. Um, But, you know, this is sort of a similar like in terms of like the quiet wanderings of people and the connection that you can make in 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 times of peril in times of um you know the the unpredictability of this new world that's being uh developed etc yeah i i love this movie i don't know i didn't i didn't expect it just snuck up on me but i really loved it it feels sort of uh of a piece with well obviously the coen brothers true grit um Mm -hmm. which is a similar storyline in terms of gruff older man and and you know young girl but that kind of melancholy Western, you know, um, there was a great little movie. I think it was an Australian person or a British person called Slow West with Michael Fassbender. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was at Sundance a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Just like there is the the shooting and the, the horses and the typical trappings, but there's this undercurrent of something else kind of existential. Um, and I think News of the World in its best moments gets to that, which is, Joanna, I think you're, I mean, they're very different movies, but I think you're right that like you in First Cow, there is also that same sort of like American expansion was obviously a horror for the people who already lived here and a horror for the people who were doing it. Right. And any mythos about pioneer days or the old West needs to address that at least in some sense. And I think that um, News of the World does in an interesting way. Yeah, I think I wanted News of the World to have, like, a little more focus on some of that stuff. Like, it's kind of he's going from, like, place to place, and you're watching him build this relationship with this girl who he finds who's been—she was kidnapped by her uh, family of German settlers and uh, raised with the Native American tribe. And you kind of, like, see where that's going, and then you see him, like, meet Bill Camp and meet Elizabeth Marvel and then, like, maybe unionize as a factory town that—or a mining town. That gets a little fuzzy. Um, and I just felt like the like the themes of First Cow to me were so sharp. Like it is so specifically about these, like about finding society, about like what can and can't survive in the West, about being able to connect across a culture. And News of the World felt like more expansive and also a little bit less focused as a result of it. 
But I'm also a sucker for a Western, so I'm not going to complain too much about yeah, it. Yeah, maybe it was unfair of me to compare the two. I was just sort no, of No, like, I think it's totally I, fair. I think it's fair, yeah. I, I just like, I want to see what everyone saw in First Cow, which is why I'm genuinely going to give it another go. But like, this is, I think, what people have described loving in, in that film. Um, I hear your critiques. They're, they're not unfounded. I, it is sort of like a shaggy film. But maybe because I just went in like expecting nothing yeah and i came out really enjoying i mean like you can't it's hard to beat like tom hanks with with a cute kid is you know it's the mandalorian but like <laughs> you know like <laughs> a little blonde girl instead of grow oh, that's, that's, that's a lot of pressure for helena zingle to live up to baby yoda's <laughs> legacy i don't know if any human can i think also in terms of pressure like the trailer for this movie makes it seem like it's this big sweeping oscar event epic and it's so not. I mean, yeah. the book that it's based on is like a slim little novella that's even more spare than the movie is. And and I think the movie approximates the tone of the book pretty well. I mean, they change kind of how he meets the girl in a way that I don't love. But like, but I worry that people are going to go into this expecting a big sweeping Tom Hanks Western and then getting this little story of like something that happened once in Texas many years ago. You know, um, it does not have any grander, I don't think. I mean, there are thematic things in there, obviously, but like there's kind of like one and a half action scenes. Like it's pretty, it's, quiet. it's pretty mild. Yeah. Yeah. But those, th- and that was my favorite part. The, my favorite parts are just sort of like Tom Hanks trying to find a way to connect with this girl when there's a language barrier and and those little moments and those little connections I found really charming. So, yeah, maybe because I just didn't have that expectation. But as you say, Katie, like it is a film that, you know, it is is like a beautiful, you know, would be nice to see on the big screen kind of film. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. I watched it on my laptop because it was a screener. So yep, you know. we do what we can. Yeah. Um, well, I guess speaking of big screen things, uh, Richard, you have seen Wonder Woman 1984, which Joanna and I mentioned earlier that we haven't seen. Um, and that movie is kind of the definition of something that was intended to be seen um, on as big a screen as possible. So how how do you feel about it being our Christmas plans for me and Joanna? I think it's a solid Christmas plan. I think it's um, at its best parts a very fun movie. A friend of mine. Uh, who works in our field uh, after watching it remarked, oh, right, that's what superhero movies are because <laughs> it's been <laughs> a year without them. Yeah. Um, and that, don't, that does not mean it is a pejorative. It just, it's just like, oh, right, like the, the, the trappings of these movies that like we have not, we're, we're so used to seeing one every few months at this point almost. But I would say for the first hour, the movie really does something. It elevates the genre or it, or it at least crystallizes it into something really fun, you know, um, Patty Jenkins really has a lot of uh, fun with um, the the 80s setting, you know, the opening sequence. Well, no, there's a kind of prologue, but the opening sequence in 84 is at this bright hued mall, the shopping mall, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the consumerist palaces of the 80s um, that are now mostly abandoned and forgotten. And it just it just it it feels silly in a way that a lot of these movies, especially in the DC world, have sort of taken themselves too seriously. That's been a common complaint all since Batman Begins. And and this is just like having fun. I think eventually the wheels kind of they don't come off the bus, but they start to rattle a bit um, once it has to actually like buckle down and like do superhero shit. But I will say, speaking of superhero shit. I really like, I mean, there's a post-credit scene that critics didn't see, but uh, unless, depending on what that involves, 
this movie does not try to be a part of anything but Wonder Woman. It's not mm. like, oh, and there's Aquaman or whatever. It's just here's a standalone thing that's a sequel to the first movie. But like this is on her. She's on her own path now. And I find that, well, maybe from Warner Brothers, it's a it's a kind of they're seeding. You know, OK, we, we didn't we didn't pull off the Avengers thing with Justice League that we hoped to. Or maybe it was just like seeing that there's a more interesting narrative way through when you don't have to bind this all together. Um, Richard, what you're saying about the um, the wheels not quite falling off the end, but that, that's kind of how the first Wonder Woman felt to me, and that was such a like a global sensation. Like, do do we have kind of a like not lowered expectations, but like we're willing to forgive things like that in a movie that they, that offers so much else to grab onto? Well, yeah, especially because like the wheels have fully flown off the bus, then somehow flown around and destroyed the bus in uh, <laughs> in other DC movies. <laughs> like the wheels have been a problem, and the wheels are pretty much okay in this one. Um, yeah, it's more just that like you know you get to like the big bad, and he's you know um, I don't think it's a spoiler. Like the villains are played essentially by Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal. I, I don't know what kind of contract things you DC had to do to get him away from Disney, but um, That's but true. um. Well, I guess Warner owns him because of Game of Thrones, so it's all, you know. Um, he's, he's the property of so many corporations. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, you get to a certain point in these movies where there has to be big climactic stuff. And it's just we've seen so much of it that it's hard to make it interesting. And you start to miss the smaller, quirkier character moments that this movie is full of in the first hour. Kristen Wiig mm. is great. I mean, she's great throughout. Pascal's great throughout, as is uh, um, Gal Gadot, of course. But... You know, the movie spends an admirable amount of time sort of getting to know its characters and its its Washington, D.C. setting, its film location that looks really summery and nice. And and you're kind of just, you know, grooving along with that. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, we have to then give you big action set pieces that are, are well staged. I mean, Jenkins knows what she's doing, but that's when the movie starts to feel a bit more rote and yeah. um, like a product. I still wouldn't mind a superhero product at this phase of things. Like it's still just it feels like an appealing alternative well, to yeah. television, which is what I've been watching so much of. And I'm just excited to spend more time with Gal Gadot's uh, Diana because, like, that's a, I loved her characterization of that character. You know, I like most people thought Justice League was not very good. Uh, so it just feels like you know it's been three years since we got to hang out with Diana and I want to hang out with her again and 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 spend time with her. So I'm excited to do that. That's that's what's more interesting to me than like whatever she may punch uh, in, in Act 3. <laughs> yeah, it's good to spend time with her. I know that this is superficial and then, but her clothes are great in it and um, listen, listen. You know, and as are Kristen Wiggs sure as are Pedro Pascal's I don't know he has good suits I guess but um, you know it has a lot of aesthetic pleasures the act, the performances are good I feel like at this point that's more than enough to um, make it worth it to uh, you know subscribe to HBO Max I guess yeah all right well to close out this part of it before we uh, hear Julie Miller's interview with Emma Corrin uh, Richard we saved talking about awards uh, for you since you voted in a critics group last week with the New York Film Critics Circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, the Los Angeles Film Critics, Los Angeles Film Critics, and the Chicago Film Critics have announced their award winners. Um, they've been, in some ways, across the board. Like, there's been three different Best Picture winners from the three different groups, but a lot of the titles we've been talking about a lot on here. Um, Richard, from your vote with New York Film Critics Circle, anything you were especially proud of, or um, or felt like a personal victory for you? Without going too much into what I voted for I, per, personally, because it is technically supposed to be kind of a secret ballot, um, I thought it was really nice that we recognized a breadth of films. You yeah. know, uh, there were a couple of movies that won 
two awards each. But for the most part, you know, we had a different best picture, a different best director, a different best screenplay. And they were all women, as was our best first film from Rada Blank, uh, the 40 year old version. It felt like a very exciting recognition of the fact that women really did make the most interesting films of this of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not paying lip service to anything. It was a genuine because, again, it's all secret ballot. Like there's not any real cahoots in, in this. It just happens sort of or, pretty much organically. Um, to that end, I was really excited that um, Never Really, Sometimes Always, a tough movie to watch that came out in March right before the pandemic, sort of had a VOD thing shortly thereafter. But I was worried, got lost in the, you know, the swirl of that that time and, and um, in the spring. But, you know, hopefully a win for best screenplay by director, writer Eliza Hittman and best actress Sidney Flanagan, a first time actor uh, in that film, will will give that movie the little the little bump it needs because I think that it, there's some really crucial stuff in there uh, thematically, but also in terms of its filmmaking, Eliza Hittman has been an exciting director for a while and is now even more so. Yeah, I feel a similar way about First Cow, which we just mentioned earlier, and I don't think has gotten quite as overshadowed the way that Never Rarely Sometimes Always did. But I, I do feel like a, a New York Film Critics Circle win for it is a really big stamp um, and a way to push it into, like, I think, like, I guess still a long shot Oscar campaign. But, like, it's 2020. Nothing should be a long shot this year. And First Cow was so deserving to me. So I was really happy to see that. Yeah. I mean, before we go on to talk about L.A. and, and Chicago, I'll just say that um, when, when the awards were announced um, on the 18th, I guess it was, there were, you know, a couple armchair pundits online who were noting that, like, in the 95-year history of the awards or whatever it is, 85 years, um, the best film winner from the New York Film Critics Circle has all but one time or something or maybe every time gone on to be nominated for at least one, quote, major Oscar. Hmm. And people were saying, well, First Cow is going to be the first time, you know, like, the, like there's no way that movie is going to get. Oh, and it's like, on. but that's wh- crazy. But like, it really could, you know, no, <laughs> yeah, it really could. And, and so yeah. I, I, I not that I, the New York Film Critics Circle, this is why we voted this year versus next. Like, we really do not think about Oscar, you know, as much as we can. You know, it's impossible to shut out entirely. But if anything, there is sort of a corrective impulse in terms of like, well, this stuff isn't going to win. But I think oftentimes, right, right. as that statistic shows. They are in conversation with with, with each other um, unintentionally. So anyway, I think First Cow is the kind of movie that like sh- you know would get written off. It was a summer release. It's tiny. It's about a cow. <laughs> um, but <laughs> there are people in it. To be clear, I think even in a strong year where the pandemic hadn't happened, I think that given how how beloved that film is within a certain facet of the industry, um, I still think it has it has legs. Four of them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joanna, anything you wanted to highlight from um, from any of these awards? Yes, I'm excited to see a couple narratives. I mean, like you're right, Richard, that uh, and I especially like it when these critical bodies act as as a corrective, as a like highlighting something that maybe the Oscars might not. But at the same time, when you start to see the same thing crop up again and again, then you start to coalesce these narratives, right? And and this has been such a weird year for coalescing narratives that this really feels like um, a first time that I feel like I'm getting a hold on on what everyone's talking about. So a couple things. First of all, my, uh, you know, you know, I always pick a like favorite of my heart every year. Um, I didn't know what it was. I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, what is my thing this year? Mm. I think it's Wolfwalkers and like Wolfwalkers won all three, uh, you know, uh, that we were talking about for animated film. So, you know, sometimes that happens that like the slightly off the beaten track animated film wins all of these and then doesn't 
managed to beat Disney out at the Oscars. But, you know, with love and respect to Soul and Disney, I am pulling for Wolf Walker. So that made me excited. And then I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name. Please correct me if I am. Is it Paul Racy or Paul Racy, who's in Sound of Metal? I don't know uh, how to pronounce My Italian class memory would say Racy, but I, yeah, I don't Ricci, know. Yeah, Racy, right? Yeah, okay. I don't know, but he, he won the Chicago Award, but, like, got the run. Like, his name is all of a sudden feels, like, very possible in a supporting actor uh, category, possibly. And that makes me really excited because I just thought he was phenomenal in that film. Like Riz Ahmed, I've already talked about how much I liked him in that film, but I really liked this role and this performance. Uh, So I was really pleased to see that sort of taking shape. Um, You know, and other than that, it's, you know, it's a lot of like things we had already assumed, like around No Man Land and Chadwick and a bunch of other things. So... Yeah. Yeah. The the um the New York Film Critics Circle supporting actor win for Chadwick Boseman at Five Blends, the best actor for Delroy Lindo. Like that was a fascinating split to me because, you know, Delroy Lindo, also in a Netflix movie, I think is going to be in some ways competing with Chadwick Boseman in that best actor race. And I liked the New York Film Critics Circle giving him a bump there. Yeah, that was an interesting development. I mean, I, I you know, Boseman got votes. I don't think I'm talking out of school but he got votes in best actor and supporting you know um both categories and uh yeah i mean i think that there has been no doubt that he has a strong narrative but now the question is is he going to get not two nominations but in the supporting actor i mean uh, paul ritchie you know joanne i think he's someone who's so good in that movie and worth keeping an eye on i was really happy that the la film critics named glenn turman uh bozeman's co-star in ma rainey as their supporting actor choice he made had a strong showing at new york as well um He's one of these actors where you see him and you're like, oh, he's in like 18 million things. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's so good and he's so good in that movie. And, you know, whether or not that means Oscar will pay attention or whether that even matters really. But like, you know, it's just really nice when these critics groups like find that performer or that performance and are just like, you know, that was the singular work of the year. And and it just gives a lot of people more opportunity to kind of come to the party. Well, even though it's a virtual party this year. Um, I you know I would say similar for Yoon Yeo-jung from Minari, which Lele also awarded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Glenn Turman also had a really good. He had a great Fargo year as well. Uh, great, a great showing on a like kind of bumpy season of Fargo. So um, you know it's one of those years where like an actor's TV work and film work can you know kind of come together. And as you say, he's an actor where as soon as you see his face, you're like, I've enjoyed so many things that you've done for so long. And that's a kind of, you know, it's usually that kind of performer is usually awarded in the supporting category because they're usually like journeyman actors and stuff like that. But um, that's that's my favorite kind of supporting award is like, I've you've been there this whole time and we've seen you. And this is the year where we're going to like really let you know that we've been seeing you. So yeah, a great, a great pick. We probably shouldn't end it without mentioning that Los Angeles film critics kind of threw a bomb uh, at, I don't know, somebody when they picked Small Axe as their best film of the year. Um, not films, film singular. Um, Steve McQueen has described uh, the series as a five film series. Um, so I think the debate of whether or not it's TV or movies is now the debate of whether or not it's one movie or five. Um, I don't know that we're going to settle it or don't care super strongly about it, but I do enjoy that they pick something that's not going to be eligible for the Oscars just because it's, it's great and they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, look, if I'm putting bad education on my best of the year, movies of the year list, even though that aired on, quote, on television, you know, I think the Small X thing is interesting also because New York Film Critics Circle had um, their cinematographer won for best cinematography. And mm-hmm. when we announced the winner, we just said all five films because that cinematographer did all five films and Steve McQueen directed all five Small X movies. So 
they do feel like a singular work, even though they're, you know, VF is reviewing each one separately and you can read those online if you want. It's a really tricky thing and it's just an interesting, interesting harbinger of more to come. You know, we're going to have more of these weird questions and eventually it's going to seem weird that we ever were so fussed about it. You know, it's going to be like, well, of course we know a movie when we see it, you know. Right. Uh, I forgot to mention also the the Chloe Zhao narrative. She won all three uh, for Best Director. Um, No Man Land did well overall, but like Chloe Zhao, that narrative... Once again, I love to see a narrative coalesce, and and it's exciting to see it coalesce around a creator like Chloe Zhao. So, oh, I should say, Joanna, um, she won our awards for Eternals. We got to see it early. It's really great. You guys are gonna love it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. No, I've not seen Eternals. (laughs) I promise. Marvel can send their snipers home. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, okay, well, that's with with all of those things discussed with many of the films of 2020 now behind us. Um Let's go back to talk about something that we've been obsessed with for a month now. We're going to listen to Julie Miller's interview with Emma Corrin, the star of The Crown. It's so good to talk to you because the last time we chatted, uh, I don't think you had even seen the episodes, right? Yeah, no, I remember I remember our chat. I hadn't seen anything, yeah. When did you finally watch the episodes? Like, did you sit down for the premiere like everybody else did? I think it's quite... I think it was quite shortly after we spoke, actually. I got sent three and then six and then nine and ten. So I guess my main ones. And it was incredible. I kind of hated watching them by myself, but I had my flatmates see them with me. And it was it was really sweet to see everyone's reaction. It was um, it made it less terrifying, I suppose. That seems like kind of a Diana move. I imagine her, she would watch it with her flatmates back in the beginning. Wait, did you have to watch it out of sequence then? If you got the third and sixth episode first? Yeah, but I think because it was it was before it all came out, they just sent me my ones so I could see that like I was happy with everything. And how did your flatmates react to it? What did they think? I remember afterwards them so it was really interesting. They were like, "Oh, we thought it was going to be really weird because it, we wouldn't be able to forget it was you, but because of your voice and because of like everything, they were like we completely forgot it was you, which is the best compliment I think you can get." And your mom's a huge Diana fan. What did she think? I know that she helped you with getting the voice correct, right, in the speech. She was so over the moon. I think it felt like a real joint celebration, both me and her. Because, yeah, because we'd worked on it before the auditions, and I think there was, like, mutual investment. So I think it was really special for her, I remember. Yeah, on the day it came out, watching it with her and my brother. Well... 
I'm curious because Diana coming into the royal family, as we saw, that was so daunting. She was so young. She was a teenager. She kind of didn't know what she was getting in store, had in store for her. You coming to the crown must have been kind of a similarly daunting experience, walking into those doors, that huge, lavish production. Who kind of took you under their wing? Did anyone kind of like show you the ropes? Yeah, that was definitely Helena and then Josh, I'd say. I was invited the day that the news broke about my casting, which was, I think, back in like last March. We, I was invited to a screening of season three. They were screening season three for the cast. And so I, I was invited to meet everyone. And I remember Helena was there and she immediately just like scooped me up and invited me to dinner that evening. So we went out, I think, in Soho somewhere together for dinner with um, her boyfriend and I think Tobias and her agent. And it was lovely. And I there was no... I mean, I grew up, I was, my favorite film was A Room of the View. I've always thought of Helena as like this, this like kind of ephemeral kind of icon of acting, but someone who I didn't, never thought I'd really get to know in that way. And she just is the most grounded, immediate, warm person. And I think also we could get on very well. So there was immediately just like an affinity and we became very close and she's been amazing anytime that I felt overwhelmed or felt scared. And I even most of the time don't have to ask for the advice. She'll just call me and be like, how are you holding up? Or do you want to come around? Or are you okay? Or just checking in, which is, means a lot because I guess, sometimes I guess when you're in a cast with incredible people, although they can give you amazing advice, sometimes I suppose you might find that you can't reach out because you feel shy. So it was lovely to have her kind of bridge that gap for me so that I always felt like I had someone to go to. Oh, I love that. And you've been in contact with her throughout this whole strange year experience. Yeah, yeah. We go on walks um, quite often together with our dogs, which is nice. And then Josh, obviously, who's who I f- did most of my filming with and I couldn't have wished for someone better. And also, I think because he'd been in season three, but not a huge amount, it did feel like we were embarking on something together at the same time. Yeah, which was nice. Right. To star as this iconic couple together, like how have have you processed that you're done with with the crown? I haven't processed. I wish you were coming back for another season. I don't think we have. I mean, it was also very weird because, I mean, we were meant to we had one week of filming left before lockdown started and we were meant to go to the Pyrenees and film the week skiing with the avalanche. And I remember throughout those like dreary January, February months when our nine to five, although obviously the best job in the world, you know, it's a nine to five and well, nine to nine normally, seven till nine. It did get, you know, really long and the days were very like cold and that kind of thing. I remember I was just thinking, oh, but it's going to be great because we're, we're going to like our last week, we're going to all be together and we're going to be in the Pyrenees and it will be, have so much fun and we'll be able to have, like wrap there and have a big celebratory dinner. And we didn't get that. And I think I, we didn't even know that our last day filming would was our last day filming. I don't think we even had our last day together. And then suddenly we were all in lockdown. So it was very, very strange. And in retrospect, I actually think it might be helpful because it kind of took any excess emotion out of leaving. I think had we had it wound down normally and we had like a rap party and all said goodbye, it would have felt so sad. We didn't really have a chance for it to feel like that because the world suddenly went into a completely extraordinary state of being. So now it sort of feels like I don't really know what's happened, but yeah. I'm kind of sad we didn't get to see Diana and I'm sure it was going to be a fabulous ski ensemble. I actually think Charles was the one with the amazing ski suit. I remember Josh sending me pictures from his fitting and it looked hilarious. It looked so good. 
I read, I actually spoke to Andrew Morton, who was Diana's biographer, and he had such lovely things to say about your portrayal. He said, of all, he said, of all the actors who've tried to, to play Diana, you were the one who kind of captured her, her spirit. He was really moved. And he also, he was just impressed that the crown managed to get the wig right, because so often, I guess, the wig isn't. So kind of him. I mean, he's the, yeah, expert. I know. Have you heard from many people who knew her, who, who passed along no, their thoughts? I oh, I think Peter Morgan has a friend who was a close friend of hers who came to a screening, and I remember an email being forwarded to me from her. I can't quite recall her name, but um, it was a very sweet email saying how touched she was at my portrayal, and that really means a lot. But I'm never really sure what to feel because it makes me feel strange, I suppose, because I understand that it must be strange for, for those people, and I kind of help but feel worried that I don't want to step on any toes or make them feel like I'm occupying a space that isn't mine to, to occupy, yeah. I remember you saying that you got the chance to talk to Patrick Jeffson, is that his name, right? Diana's old secretary. Yeah. I, I'm curious, what was that conversation like and what were some of the more, I guess, key reveals he gave to you that helped unlock her character? Look, to be honest, I... <laughs> I really, really enjoyed speaking to him and it was helpful. I didn't get that much from it that helped me in terms of my character development. My process tends, as an actor tends to be more inside out than outside in. So, I mean, he's an incredible guy and it was so amazing because I actually didn't meet anyone else who knew her to sit down opposite someone who knew her and get this sense of her. And it wasn't really anything specific he said, but just, just you can tell when a person speaks about someone, you get a sense of that person. So that was really useful. And it was so kind of him to speak to me. But yeah, I, I, on the whole, I found with Di that it was a slippery slope if I started depending too much on research and hearsay and anecdotes. Because at the end of the day, like I, it was the scripts that were in front of me that, there was, that are the important thing and that were the important thing and Peter's character that he'd written. And so after I'd done a lot of research um, that was mostly specific to the episodes... So, for instance, in episode three, I knew I wanted to, I would have read about who her flatmates were, her relationship with them, anything that was said about how she felt about the transition from living with her flatmates to living in the palace, where exactly she stayed in the palace, what her days were like, that kind of thing. But then sort of you have to forget that. And for me, it was then very much about, yeah, working out from the inside, like feeling and trying to empathize with this person and what she was going through and how that would make her think and feel and whatever. Yeah. Right. What did you learn about her days in the palace? And did you know that the roller skating scene would become such an iconic moment from the series? It was kind of a full mood that people really embraced. Yeah, I love it. I love that scene so much because it kind of sums her up, right, in her entirety or that kind of juxtaposition between her and the palace, her and the royal family, and the way it didn't, it kind of jarred and didn't fit in. But also, I suppose, how she brought a new life and colour to to the royal family. And I think her skating through the palace is <laughs> fantastic, sitting in the throne. Yeah. And there, there are wild, really delightful real-life stories about how she, I guess, rode bikes, bicycles, a bike through... Um, 
the queen mom's house the night before she got married to Charles. Yes. Oh my God. I know the spirit was there. Um, So you said you went back and you kind of figured out you did research according to which episode it was. But I'm curious because we see such a transformation with Diana. The Diana who's introduced, obviously she's a teenager, is so much different than the Diana at the end of the season. How did you go about plotting who she was in each episode? And were those episodes filmed chronologically? No, they weren't at all. So we started with one and two. For me, because obviously I'm not in all of them, I started with one and two. And then we did six in Spain, where we, which we used for Australia. Then I came back and started on three, nine and ten. And I filmed three, nine and ten simultaneously, which was incredibly weird because obviously... Three is like the beginning of her and her at her most youthful and vulnerable and going through immense change. And obviously nine and ten takes her into a completely different sphere. But I loved it. I I think if you would have sat me down and actually said like you would be filming these at the same time, I would have been terrified. But actually in the midst of it, it helped me always have in mind exactly where I'd come from and exactly where I was going with her and how those two different Dianas because I kind of did think of them as two different people lived inside of this character at the same time I don't know if that makes sense no it does did Peter Morgan sit you down and kind of talk about um her transformation or did he let the scripts speak for themselves let the scripts speak for themselves but we had a lot of rehearsals for the key scenes and I guess those key scenes did dictate a lot of the changes that we see in her for instance the big argument scene when she comes back from New York with Charles. I remember that was one that Josh and I really struggled with because we'd never taken our characters to that place of anger before. And really it marks the end of their relationship. And obviously the first time that Charles has explicitly said, I don't love you, I love Camilla. And I think that is a massive turning point for Diana because I think we see a change after that, how she stops fighting for them. And she starts fighting for herself. And I think that's a huge, huge, yeah, change and uh, departure from the girl we've seen before. There were these two things, basically, in Die, which was, like, her strength, which is huge throughout the series, but also her vulnerability, which is immense. And it was really interesting for me to be very conscious at any given moment how I never wanted just to play one tone. I never just wanted to show her strength when I never just wanted to show her vulnerability, I wanted to show this weird mix. And I think a good example of it is when she's at the lunch scene with Camilla and you can see that she's at her most vulnerable. She feels completely targeted and humiliated and horrified really to learn about the truth behind this person that she's in love with, who's obviously in love with someone else. And yet she makes a decision that she was gonna fight And so when she starts giving it back to Camilla, I just love that moment because you can see how scared and how vulnerable she is, but she's really like trying and she's really never going to give up. And I think that's like a beautiful thing. Right. Did you and Charles kind of come to an agreement, or Charles, I'm calling him Charles, Josh, (laughs) did you and Josh kind of come to an agreement beforehand about Charles and Diana's relationship? Because there are so many different things that have been said. There are clearly two sides to the story about, you know, how much they loved each other 
how much time they gave it to really work on their marriage before Charles went back to Camilla. What was the perspective you... We didn't really prescribe a lot to it because I think, as you said before, you used a great expression, which was like the script do the work for you in that respect. And that's certainly what we thought. One thing we did have to really bear in mind was never to play the ending. Even, you know, in the, especially in the happiest moments in episode six, we had to completely forget really that there was any tragedy in the end to really make those moments feel tangible and believable, I suppose. But... Looking back on it now that we've done the series and watched it, I suppose, which I suppose gives us a new perspective, I think we both agree that it's kind of what Charles says in that massive argument, which is really horrific thing to say to someone. You shouldn't say it, but it is true. When he says to her, you sh- if you have a problem, you should take it up with the people who arranged it. Because, I mean, it's sort of like it's a horrible thing to say, but I think what he means is that, or how I interpret it for their relationship is like, so many mistakes were made by him and by her throughout this whole thing. But really, the biggest mistake that was ever made was that they got married in the first place. I think in our story, that's like the real thing. And I think you see hints of that in episode three when Margaret is trying to warn them and then of what will happen. And then Anne, I think, warns them. And Charles is saying, I'm not sure. But everyone is saying, you've got to do it. And maybe it wasn't the right thing. I'm curious, did you take anything of Diana's from the crown? She had such amazing clothes. I want to believe that you have like the the sweater, the lamb sweater. That I started making on my phone while filming because I got on really well with, um, so Sid and Amy, who are mother and daughter who do the costumes, became, I guess, my surrogate family on set. I love them so much. And Sid and I were really close. And I remember that anytime I wore anything like vintage jeans or like a vintage jumper, there was like a YSL bomber. I remember we were fighting over who would take it back. And there was like a blue slip that she wore in New York in her room. And I remember I started making a list on my phone of all the costume that I wanted to keep. And they were like, yeah, I'm sure you can have it. The bits that don't go on tour with the costume tour. But because of the lockdown, like I never got to have like a final moment where I was like, oh, can I take all the stuff? So I actually haven't got any. But the weirdest thing is, I was telling someone yesterday, I went to a, I was invited to a Penhaligon's, the the perfumery in London, invited me to come in and like choose a scent, which is very sweet. But while I was there, they were like, so did you know the relationship? And I was like, sorry? And they said, well, do you know the relationship with us and and, and Diana? And I was like, no. And she said, "We we make her perfume. We made her perfume. And I was like, oh my God. And so they were like, yeah, and we've got some, we'd love to give it to you. And I was kind of, yeah, literally, I was like, oh, wow. Because I mean, obviously, so sweet and so kind. Right. Also terrifying, like I don't want to smell <laughs> at all. It was so bizarre. And it was so weird because they, they sprayed it on me and I was like, this is so weird. Because I'm a very sense or a smell-oriented person. Right. It's always how I recognise people, like, I could smell, like, which of my friends or which from their, like, jumpers or whatever. So I found it so strange. But I have it. I have it in my room. I don't know what I to do with it. I've hidden it behind some jumpers because I'm scared. Did it smell how you expected? Sort of. Not what I expected, but it did make sense. It's called Bluebell something, and it smells very foresty and very and quite sweet. And I think I expected her to have, like, a warmer smell, like, more caramelly. Right. But it's quite, like, fresh. Really interesting. I mean, if you're ever in London, you go past Penhaligon's, like, go in and it's called Blue... I'll ask them. I'm sure they'll, like, put some on a thing for you. It's mad. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Do you have 
any Diana artifacts in your apartment? Do you have, like, did you get any of, like, the souvenir plates or anything? No, I actually don't. I get a lot of pictures sent to me from friends who've, like, gone home for the weekend or whatever and their parents have, like, fished out their Diana mugs or whatever. I think I went to my, yeah, I was at my friend's um, the other day and he his parents had a Diana and Charles like their pictures on a tiny little flask about this big of like wedding liqueur that that was never opened. And I think the idea was you bought it and then drank it on their wedding day, but it's never been drunk. But there's so much stuff, isn't there? There really is. Did you just politely say you don't want that? (laughs) I don't think he was offering it to me, but yeah, I think I would have been like, maybe not. Um, When I spoke to Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret in the first two seasons, she said that there were specific Princess Margaret events that happened later in her life that she was, it like killed her that she didn't get to play those moments. I'm curious if you have those thoughts about Princess Diana in the fifth or sixth season. Were there real life events you would have loved to have played? Like I'm trying to think of even like the Andrew Morton when she was, um, secretly working on that book. I actually love my plotline because I have the biggest, biggest attachment to young Diana. I love her so much. And I think because, to be honest, for, for the most part, because a younger Diana was very undocumented. Right. She was sort of mine to create. She's in, like at, simultaneously, hopefully, based in enough research, but I think sort of fictitious. She was, yeah. And so I'm very fond of her and... So in a way, I feel so grateful that I've been able to play the years that I have. But also, Elizabeth's going to have the best time because you leave Diana in this episode 10, embarking on taking back her life, I suppose. And yeah, she starts like living and fighting for herself and doing humanitarian work and traveling and really stepping into the role of the people's princess and occupying that role. And that will be a beautiful thing because it will be the confident Diana. Yeah. Kind of rewinding. I can't believe the Uptown Girl performance really happened. That's real. Yeah, how weird. It is crazy. And there there are all sorts of interviews with the the late ballet dancer describing how they happened. And it seems like your choreographed sequence was really spot on. I had to learn. I had to do so many rehearsals for that. Yeah, the weirdest thing is I want to know where the footage is because there are so many pictures online, but there's no footage. And someone must have some somewhere. Right. I'm curious, what were the the scenes that you found most surprising to realize they actually happened? Like, did you have any idea that the uptown... The Phantom of the Opera thing shocked me the most. Wait, that really happened? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. What did you learn about that? Pretty much it's exactly as it happened in the series, I think. As in, she hired the West End set and she got a film crew in. She filmed it for Charles, which is mental. She did it after she did the Wayne Sleep dance and it went down badly, but yeah. Oh my gosh. How was it filming that? It was very intense. We filmed those two days simultaneously. We booked the Wimbledon Theatre. We'd, we'd hired the Wimbledon Theatre and we had the Thursday doing Uptown Girl and the Friday doing All I Ask of You. And it was very overwhelming. I actually had a huge panic attack in the middle of the filming All I Ask of You because I think I was knackered because filming any kind of like performance sequence, you it just means you have to do it a thousand times. Right. And um, there were also a lot of people around. There was like the whole audience in the theatre and then on the All I Ask of You day, they had actual <laughs> actors from the West End show in to be 
the people on stage and they had the real orchestra and the real conductor from the show. And the real conductor is obviously very used to doing it his way. He'd been conducting it for years. And I had learnt it a different way. And so I started singing and it was awful because we basically were doing two different things. And I remember everyone thinking, oh no, because one of us was going to have to give, either I was going to have to try and learn a whole different version of timing and of everything, or he was going to have to like right. bend do it his way. And it was fine. It was just terrifying. And I was so worried about doing it badly. Yeah, but it, it was fine. It was fine. It was just like a very, I think I've never, it really was that moment where you think, God, I've, this is a real challenge. Oh my gosh. I can't believe she actually did that. That's, it's, it's so sweet that that, Sweet. Me and my friends always talk about love languages. <laughs> love language. And I think that's kind of what I think about. Well, it's like when they're sitting down for dinner and she's like, oh, I know you didn't like the public thing, but also this is how I tell people I love them and this is how I express myself. So I did it in a different way for you. Well, what are you looking forward to now once you move past Diana, past the crown? I've been developing some stuff of my own in lockdown, which has been fun. So I've optioned the rights to an article that I found last year and it was a real upper battle trying to get the rights, but we've just completed that. So we're now developing that, which is exciting. And yeah, and I think I hopefully I'm, I'll do some theatre next year, which will be fun to do some, be on the stage again. To be honest, I'd love to do something really modern, really grungy and like the exact opposite to, to die. And the article that you're adapting, would you be starring in it? Would you be directing? What would that... Starring in, I guess, like, by virtue of finding it, I suppose, in a producing role, not that I know what that means, not properly, but, like, I guess that's what that makes you, I'm not sure. And then I was having, I was toying with the idea of trying to write it, but the idea of writing something, especially a screenplay, terrifies me. I listened to a very good podcast called um, Script Notes, um, which is really good. I recommend to any budding writers, my friend, put me onto it and it's really really great and they do this one episode where they completely break down finding nemo as an example of like a perfect stri- script structure um it's really cool it's very very useful so maybe i'll have a go but probably not probably just acting well i hope you get to do something really modern and grungy i would love to see you in that role <laughs> thanks yeah me too thanks well- it was so nice getting to talk with you again. I love the new season. Um, so, yeah, have some a great holiday. Thank you so much. You too. I hope you have a wonderful holiday. And I hope you get your hands on those Diana clothes at some point, those yeah, costumes. I I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> that does it for this week's show. We will have a show next week. We'll be taking a little bit of time off, but we're going to be sharing um, some interviews with some exciting people who have done great work this year so um, that will be fun and we'll be back in January as um, the final four month count of award season begins so maybe uh, we'll all be ready for it by then in the meantime you can find us at vanityfair.com and on Twitter at littlegoldmen and on our own I'm at Katie Rich and Richard Ryloffs and Joanna Joe wrote this and you should obviously follow uh, Bobby and Lindsay on Twitter and listen to their podcast Who Weekly and follow them on Twitter too This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of the Matthew Morrison Grinch goes to Lindsay Weber. Some grumpy old Christmas hater. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.